This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Earth Justice. Earth Justice lawyers use the power of the law to ensure clean air, clean water, and a thriving planet are a right for all. Earth Justice. Because the Earth needs a good lawyer. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Brady Dennis, a national environmental reporter here at The Post. I'm delighted to be hosting this two-part conversation today about climate change and environmental justice. Our first guest today is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and as it happens, a fellow North Carolinian, Michael Regan. Administrator Regan, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you, Brady. I'm delighted to be here today. Before we get to the main topic, environmental justice uh, today, I want to turn to a related, of course, but uh, uh, current uh, environmental story that's in the news, the uh, UN Climate Summit that's coming up beginning next week in Scotland. Countries from around the world are gathering, um, facing pressure to do more and do more quickly on climate change. Uh, The Biden administration is taking a large crew to this event, yourself, of course, uh, and a large number of other cabinet members. And I'd like to hear from you what administration, what message the president is trying to send with such a large contingent and what message you yourself will be taking um, to that climate summit. Well, you know, the president is sending the same signal he sent from day one, which is climate change is a threat, a threat not just to the United States, but to the world. And he has a whole of government approach. And I think when you look at the delegation that will be going to Glasgow, you will see uh, a full show of force uh, that all of our agencies have taken climate change seriously and that we're going to be there uh, in support of the president's very ambitious goal and agenda. And EPA will definitely be there to demonstrate that we have a significant role in terms of our regulatory authority and encouraging our corporate um, partners to exercise voluntary measures as well. Uh, We are there to support the president's NDA, and we're gonna be there in full force to demonstrate that it's more than rhetoric, uh, that all of our agencies are there to demonstrate how uh, America will and can lead and demonstrate uh, to the world that we are working as one government. So you mentioned the concrete things that the U.S. will will try to uh, display and and talk about uh, at that that global climate summit. The U.S. has certainly faced a lack of trust on this topic in recent years. We, we, under the Trump administration, walked away from the Paris Climate Accord. Of course, under President Biden now came back, um, and and the president has said this is one of his main priorities and pledged to to sharply cut the the, uh, greenhouse gas emissions of, of the country going forward. But at the same time, as we're seeing every day in the news, Congress has not yet funded some of those key proposals that would allow that to happen. And I just wonder, again, as you go onto this global stage, and the president does as well, uh, what are you to tell allies who, who, uh, you know, have expressed doubts that the U.S. will follow through on the promises that, that the president is making? You know, if there's anyone that knows how to deal with Congress and get the best deal, it's President Biden. And he's still in there every single minute fighting for the best deal uh, for the American people. So I have the confidence uh, that the the president and the United States will go to COP26 uh, with the ability to show that we are all in uh, when it comes to building back better and when it comes to tackling climate change. But irrespective of what Congress does, uh, the United States Environmental Protection Agency has ample uh, authority, statutory authority, legal obligations to move forward uh, as quickly as possible to tackle the climate crisis. And so we're prepared, we're ready. Uh, And EPA will move forward with a very aggressive agenda in complement to whatever Congress eventually passes. I want to follow up on that a little bit. You you said often that you consider yourself to be a consensus maker, more more of a consensus seeker than a crusader. Uh, but obviously, as we've seen with the with the uncertainty in Congress, and you just alluded to, a key piece of of meeting these climate and environmental goals is going to be using the the authority that the EPA and other agencies already have. And so, 
in some sense, what is more effective in forcing this kind of action? Is it seeking consensus or exercising executive authority? How much is achievable without Congress and the courts? And how far are you willing to go in your, in your own role to see that we uh, begin this shift uh, toward lower emissions in the future? You know, I've, I've always found success in having uh, everyone at the table and moving forward in a very transparent manner. And sometimes consensus is really focused on principles to follow through on everyone having a seat at the table and being transparent. Uh, we recognize that we're not all gonna agree, but I think most around the table understands that climate change is a significant threat. And there are multiple ways to get at that threat. Uh, I have been very clear since day one uh, that I will be transparent, I will follow the science, I will follow the law, and that this country will move forward uh, on climate change and combating climate change uh, and looking at ways to build jobs and increase our global competitiveness. And, and so I will push the envelope. I will move forward as quickly as possible, uh, as aggressively as possible, using the authorities that Congress has given us. And so I've been very transparent with our regulated community, uh, and I believe that they understand that we're here to do a job and that we're gonna to talk to them about what the best path forward is to do that, recognizing that EPA has a job to do. One last question on the international front, if I may. The US and other developed countries around the world have, have not yet lived up to uh, financial promises that they made to, uh, to small and vulnerable countries, um, developing countries around the world more than a decade ago, which would be to provide $100 billion a year uh, in aid, both for dealing with climate impacts that that these places are already seeing, and helping to fund, uh, you know, the shift toward a greener greener economies. The U.S. and other countries have not yet lived up to that. Although the president has said that he will, uh, you know, greatly increase that funding. I ask you about this because some of these nations that are really on the front lines of climate change are home to people of color, the most vulnerable populations around the world people who in some cases may already being be displaced from their homes. Given this administration's focus on environmental justice, how important is it to live up to the promises for environmental justice abroad as well as, as here at home? It's extremely important. And this president has promised that racial justice and equity and environmental justice will be central to the administration's priorities and goals. The president stepping up on the international stage and committing that financial assistance to those countries that are most vulnerable is a critical step forward in answering and following through on the promises that were made. So it's, it's very important. Uh, climate change is indiscriminate. Uh, and we know all across the globe uh, that the most vulnerable populations stand to bear the brunt of climate change impacts. And so we must do all that we can, both domestically and internationally, to protect our most vulnerable. Uh, the president has stepped up and made a pledge financially to help do that on the international stage. And here domestically, we have made it a centerpiece of EPA's mission. EJ is part of the DNA of EPA. And we're really serious about that and we're moving forward. Well, let's, let's turn to that front and uh, domestically. And uh, an EPA report from September, I believe, found that people of color in the United States are exposed to much higher uh, levels of air pollution, regardless of their region or, or income level. This is one of any number of, of, of academic studies that have shown that um, uh, you know, such communities are, are bombarded by environmental factors. What does that report and others like it tell us about systemic racism and really how it affects health uh, around the United States? It tells us that the data is there. It's more than a feeling, it's more than perception. The data calls it out. In this report, this EJ report that EPA just released, uh, one of the most in-depth reports ever done on the topic of environmental justice, it demonstrates that if we see uh, a two degrees uh, Celsius warming uh, from climate change and global warming, that you know, 34% of a black and African-Americans are more likely uh, to live in communities that will see an increase in childhood asthma. 40% uh, 
of, 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 of uh, if we see the two degree increase, 40% of blacks and African-Americans are more likely uh, to live in communities or be exposed to heat related deaths. Uh, we've seen that you know, 34% of uh, our Latinx community are more likely to see labor shortages because of the impacts to industries like agriculture and construction. So there's a 40% more likelihood that all of these things will occur uh, in these communities of color. Uh, this is very, very important data and information that we must incorporate into our regulations, into our policies, into our laws. And so this is a critical moment and we are prepared to meet the moment. When you talk about meeting the moment, the Biden administration has, has promised to fund environmental justice initiatives and projects around the country. I'd like to hear from you a little bit about how that will work, if in what ways that might already be happening, you know, and, and even more specifically, how can the federal government ensure that the funds that get delivered to states through governors who may have different priorities uh, actually end up in the hands of the groups that need it? And, and, and how soon can that process begin? Uh, I assume in a lot of ways it also depends on Congress and the funding. You know, Congress has already acted in the past to recognize uh, that this is an important issue and, and EPA's role. Uh, during the American Rescue Plan, EPA was, uh, was given $100 million to focus on environmental justice issues, 50 million specifically to focus on air quality monitoring uh, and air quality issues, uh, and then 50 million to focus on partnership opportunities with state, locals, nonprofits on environmental, tackling environmental justice issues in general. So we've got a $100 million down payment from Congress. The president has requested a 20% uh, increase in EPA's budget overall. And given that we are looking at all of our issues through the lens of environmental justice, those resources will be integrated into our program so that we see action on the ground. But then we take a step back and look at what's being discussed uh, with budget reconciliation and the Build Back Better, uh, I'm sorry, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, over $55 billion, $55 billion for water infrastructure improvements. And the president has pledged to eradicate the exposure of lead pipelines, uh, which, you know, impacts close to 6 to 10 million people. Uh, $21 billion to clean up legacy pollution uh, in our communities of color. Uh, you know, $17 billion focused on congestion and port related issues. And so we have the will to move forward. The American Rescue Plan is a down payment. The budget conversation shows the roadmap and the bipartisan infrastructure deal does as well. To round all of that out, the president has a Justice 40 initiative, which has focused all of our agencies to develop criteria and a wherewithal and a willpower to look at how 40% of all of these investments stay in these communities of color or these communities that have been disproportionately impacted for generations. That's not solely to reduce pollution, but it's also to invest in economic development, to create jobs, to pour into environmental education so that we have more sustainable communities that are better educated on how to protect themselves as well. So this is a whole of government approach, but it's also a very thoughtful approach, uh, you know, starting with the American Rescue Plan, moving through the budget request for EPA, and hopefully rounding out in this Build Back Better agenda that's playing out through budget reconciliation and the Build Back, um, the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, the Biden administration has uh, promised a year-end report card of environmental justice achievements. But Every year, I think, in fact, uh, this first year in office, you know, when should we expect that? I say we, the public, when should the public expect that? What might it say? What do you think are the high marks and, and, and places that probably need work on, on that report card, whatever it may look like? Well, you know, I'll leave it to the White House to announce when they uh, plan to publish their scorecard. But what you can anticipate uh, are seeing uh, many of the actions that agencies like EPA have already taken. Uh, you will see a scorecard that looks at how we have allocated that $100 million uh, that came to us through the American Rescue Plan. Uh, you'll see how we have been very reflective 
and retooled our own grant making processes here in the agency to get more resources to, to more people, newer organizations that have never had an opportunity to get, get grant dollars. You will see uh, the forward progress that we've made on creating an environmental justice and equity program uh, that is equivalent to uh, our air, water, and land programs. You'll also see a much stronger record on enforcement and how we've really ramped up enforcing the existing laws on the books. Uh, perfect examples are our intervention in Chicago with the car shredding company where the mayor of Chicago needed help from EPA in terms of partnering technical analysis and thinking through legal and strategic ways that we can better pr protect the southeast side of Chicago. The same with, uh, you know, the refinery in the U.S. Virgin Islands and how we had to step in there uh, and really ensure that Lime Tree Bay uh, was doing right by its citizens and really doing what needs to be done to protect these communities that have been overburdened. So, you know, EPA has a very proud track record. We know that we're just getting started and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but that report card will reflect the actions that this administration has taken over the first eight months. So uh, both while campaigning and, and while president, um, yes, the President Biden has, you know, made pretty clear that one of his main priorities to, is to help uh, like low income minority communities, vulnerable communities around the country that are disproportionately impacted by climate change. I think, uh, you know, quite a bit of the legacy pollution that you mentioned is well documented, lead lines, Superfund sites, uh, you know, uh, polluted air from from various uh, industrial operations. I'm curious, in particular, what impact you're seeing on some of these communities from climate change. In particular, what does that look like? Why does it hit these communities harder? And and what are you doing about that? Or what do you have planned to do about that? You know, we we understand that um, you know, with with climate change, the the impacts are so diverse to these communities uh, that have been disproportionately impacted. Uh, where we see extreme temperatures, we already understand that our Black, our Latinx, our tribal communities are already more vulnerable uh, because of health disparities, higher asthma rates, higher rates of heart and lung disease. Uh, the heat just puts added stress and pressure on that. So we're seeing those impacts from climate change. We're seeing the impacts from these very intense storms and these floods. Uh, those who are least financially able to rebuild and recover are getting hit the hardest. And so we're seeing that right now play out uh, when we look at our wildfires uh, and not only the destruction that's caused by the fire in these communities that are less prepared to rebuild, but we're seeing the air quality impacts hundreds and hundreds of miles away, again, really impacting these communities of color that have long borne the disproportionate impacts. And so we are seeing the impacts play out right now. You don't have to be a scientist to appreciate what's going on. All you have to do is look out your window and you'll see the storms. You can see the rains, the floods, the hurricanes and the intensity. People are feeling it in terms of the increased asthma, respiratory Ill illnesses, hospital visits. And so we must do uh, a better job in terms of reducing pollution uh, that exacerbates these health disparities in these communities of color and help them be better prepared to deal with the implications of climate change. But we also must ramp up our efforts to regulate and get deep emission cuts in these pollutants that exacerbate climate change and, and push climate change at a much faster rate than otherwise, which is why we are excited that we finalized our proposal of HFCs uh, to uh, reduce 85% of HFCs uh, in the next 15 years. Uh, HFCs are really potent greenhouse gases. Uh, we are really tackling uh, the tailpipe emissions from light duty vehicles and we're tackling the greenhouse gas uh, emissions from heavy duty vehicles, as well as health pollutants like NOx from heavy duty vehicles. Soon we'll be releasing a proposed rulemaking that will get deep emission recuts in methane 
from both new and existing oil and gas facilities. And so we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We really need to help our communities be prepared for what we're seeing today, but we also have to move very aggressively to regulate these greenhouse gas emissions to reduce uh, the exacerbation that we're seeing with climate change. You mentioned any a number of, of priorities there, you know, uh, uh, doing more to get lead out of water, uh, tackling greenhouse gas emissions from transportation or, or maybe it's power plants or, uh, and you mentioned methane specifically, like you said, a, a, a lot of things in the pipeline. I'm wondering, there is a reality in every presidential administration that, that time is always of the essence and time is always running short. I wonder for you what you're hoping to take care of or, or finalize before the end of this presidential term. I mean, what are the, in your eyes, the priorities is when it comes to the environment and climate change that absolutely have to get done? And what are the hurdles to that? We saw, um, you know, in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration, the courts really um, slowed down what each of those administrations were, were trying to do, even though their goals were, were quite opposite. Um, how do you navigate that? And what is like at the top of your uh, list of what, of what you must finish before time runs too short? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the takeaway for me is we've learned lessons from the previous administration in terms of how the courts will respond and the legal arguments that will be made. And so it's very important for me to really follow suit with what we've done on HFCs, with other regulations, on our tailpipe emission standards. We really need to have durable regulations that really usher in uh, zero emitting technologies for our vehicle fleets for the foreseeable future. We really have to have a very strong methane regulation that is durable and will withstand a lot of the legal challenges. And we will revisit uh, our carbon reduction strategy for coal plants. We've learned from previous attempts what the courts will do and won't tolerate. Uh, and we're going to apply those lessons moving forward. And so before the end of this term, uh, I'd like to have durable regulations in place uh, that can withstand the test of time and withstand litigation. And I believe that we can do that. We also have to prioritize eradicating uh, these lead service lines. Uh, we have to really focus on looking at how we begin to regulate these forever chemicals. And with the resources that will come from the Build Back Better agenda, you know, over $5 billion focused specifically on brownfield and Superfund sites. Uh, all of these are really important uh, because climate change has the ability to exacerbate uh, exposure to polluted lands, uh, fragile water infrastructure. And so while we're combating climate change, it's really important that we rebuild our infrastructure in a much more resilient way. Uh, we have to get it all done. Uh, we have a workforce that is enthusiastic, uh, has their sleeves rolled up and ready to tackle these issues. And so we're really optimistic that we will do so successfully. Uh, just a last question here. You you mentioned your workforce, and I and I wanted to ask you. You know, you came into this position promising to quote restore science and transparency at the EPA after the Trump administration left office. Uh, you you promised to rebuild an agency that had seen quite a few um, employees leave or retire um, in recent years. Talk to us about how that's going. What has that effort looked like? Why it matters? and frankly, how the public can know uh, the progress that's being made. You know, I, I, I love this agency. I started, um, my, my first internship was with EPA and I spent close to a decade here before I left. Uh, when I returned, it wasn't the same agency. Uh, morale was low. We have really ramped up our transparency with our employees. We brought them back to the table, reminded them why some of them have 20, 30, 40 year careers and have involved them in how we're moving forward. That has been a significant boost to morale. Reestablishing scientific integrity, uh, you know, reestablishing policies that specifically say we will not tolerate political interference or bullying. It has really reinvigorated the workforce here. And we have a very smart strategic plan 
for how we continue to bring in new talent. Uh, not the talent of yesteryear, uh, but the talent of the future or for the future. And so we're working very hard each and every day because we understand that if we're going to accomplish the president's goals, it cannot be done without a healthy workforce. We're laser focused on rebuilding our workforce. So far, we're seeing the morale uh, shoot back up to the roof, and we're going to continue to feed our staff with information, accessibility, and treat them as real team members. And I think we're going to be well on our way. So many more questions, but I think that's all the time we have for this particular conversation. Thanks so much, Administrator Regan, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And I'll be back in a minute with our next guest. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. With the UN Climate Conference just days away, The Lancet, the British medical journal, has issued a sobering warning that climate change could have an impact on human health that dwarfs the impact of the coronavirus and that different communities will be impacted differently. Here with me to discuss the interlocking issues of environmental justice and climate change is Abigail Dillon. She is president of Earth Justice. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jean. So the Biden administration has said it is launching an all-of-government approach to climate change. How do you feel that environmental justice is essential to U.S. leadership on the issue? Well, you can't lead on climate or make progress if you aren't taking on the unjust systems that are propelling climate change. When we choose to power this country with oil and gas and coal, we choose inevitably poisoned air and water and ravaged lands, not for everyone, but for too many communities, and they are most often black, brown, and indigenous communities who are now also contending with climate change. And the way that the fossil fuel industry maintains its power, the only way it can operate is if we enforce our health and safety standards unequally. And so what that means is if you're living next to a coal mine or a coal plant or a fracking field or a refinery, a petrochemical plant, you or someone you love has cancer or asthma and too many people around you are dying too young. That's the devil's bargain that we make with fossil fuels. And that's what we have to change. And as we do, clean energy will become the only alternative. But it won't be enough just to make that shift. We've got to repair and invest in the communities that have been most hard hit by fossil fuels and the communities that are waiting to see what their role in a new economy can be. And as long as there are people who feel that they may be left out or they may lose out in a transition to a clean energy economy, it won't emerge. So let's make this a little bit more concrete. How does it look like in practice to advance equity and justice and climate policy? Well, in the next few days and weeks, it looks like passing the Build Back Better Act. We're reading, we're hearing so much about the political machinations in Congress right now, but we're not hearing enough about what's actually in this package. It is the, big, the biggest single thing we could do to advance climate justice in this country. And I'll just give a couple examples. Our transportation sector is now the biggest carbon pollution problem we have. And our freight corridors and our busy ports are some of the most dangerous places in the country to live because they're so polluted. This act would provide the federal funding to switch out the dirty trucks and the polluting port equipment with zero emissions equipment for the future. Same with our city bus fleets, our school buses, same with the transportation systems that have never worked in low-income communities and communities of color. We can be making massive investments in EV charging infrastructure and making it affordable to actually own an EV. And one particular program that's close to my heart are grants for communities that wanna execute their vision for the future. And the reason that communities are so important is because they are driving some of the most profound and fast change in the country. We have the privilege to represent them. And what else does the Biden administration have to do to deliver on its promises regarding climate and environmental justice? And what are the challenges to doing that? 
Well, I think they have to stay true to the commitments they made. The president ran on a platform that centered for the very first time climate change, racial injustice and economic inequality. And that platform resonated because it's real. It's the true problem that we face. And so step one is to get the Build Back Better Act over the finish line. And then it's to really use the full force of the executive branch, the Department of Energy, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Interior, of course, the EPA, to use every power we have to get at fossil fuel uh, pollution and advance the solutions that we have. Our problems right now are not technological. They are political and cultural. And if the government really invests in doing things a different way, we can see change materialize very quickly. I trust uh, Administrator Regan is behind that, uh, particularly bringing in the people who are most impacted by the problems to help fashion the solutions. This isn't about one administration. This is a long-term issue, a set of long-term problems. Looking in that longer term, what do you see as the opportunities and the priority? I think we have to really dig in to belief in local solutions paired with federal action. And I'll give you two examples why. One is that what we're seeing is tribal communities, local communities, nurses, doctors uniting around solutions they know will work for their communities. And when they do that, they're achieving extraordinary things against the odd. But for organizing and litigation in the Pacific Northwest, we would see that region be a fossil fuel hubs facilitating US oil and gas and coal to Asian markets. But for the courageous work of Rise St. James in Louisiana and an incredible coalition in the Gulf South, we would see new petrochemical facilities being built, expanding our carbon footprint, our cancer-causing pollution, and plastics manufacture. So really investing in the climate action that's coming up through the grassroots and, and creating a system for it to flourish is the opportunity that we have before us now. And I'll leave your audience with one last point. We can't do any of this good work without strong laws and fair courts. And just as we understand that voting rights and reproductive rights depend on the courts, we have to understand that climate progress does too. Abigail Dillon, president of Earth Justice. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello. And welcome back to the Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Brady Dennis, National Environmental Reporter here at The Post. My next guests today are here to talk us through the complexities and the opportunities of climate justice and environmental intersectionalism. Jerome Foster II is an environmental justice advisor to the Biden administration. And Leah Thomas is a writer and activist who focuses on educating the next generation of environmental advocates on how to create meaningful change. To you both, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, thanks for having us. Great to be here. Jerome, let's start with you. I wanna start with the biggest environmental story in the news, certainly this week and in the weeks ahead, uh, the COP26 UN Climate Summit uh, in Scotland. It has been described by some as perhaps one of the last best chances to put the planet on a sustainable path for the future. And I noticed that you tweeted that you're, you're planning to be there, I believe. In any case, what kind of action are you hoping to, uh, to see from that gathering? And in particular, what concrete promises do you want or expect President Biden to deliver on that international stage? Yeah, so when it comes to COP26 and what the youth movement is demanding specifically, it's an end to fossil fuel subsidies. And because of the fact that we talk about free markets and having the capitalism be um, the transition to, 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 um, to, clean, to climate justice, it really is not that. We have to make sure that we're playing on a level playing field. Solar can't just be the next coal barons. We have to make it more rooted in communities, so we're asking for ends to subsidies there. Also, we're, act, um, we're demanding an end to the production of oil pipelines like fracked oil that's going through America right now through Line 3 or the North Brooklyn Pipeline and on the international stage with Nord Stream 2. 
there's so many bills that we're trying to pass nationally in the United States that we also need to see on the international stage when it comes to giving funding to frontline communities in countries that are seeing the climate crisis at their front doorstep right now and that they need international aid as we see it and, and as we um, need equity based and, and real climate solutions given, um, given through aid to them. Just to follow up, I'm curious how you are planning to spend your time in the, in the lead up here to COP26 and, and how do you plan to spend these coming weeks, uh, you know, focusing and drawing attention to the issues that you just highlighted while there is this sort of global spotlight um, on this? How do you how do you plan to do that? So yesterday evening, we just kicked off COP26 here in Los Angeles with the mayor of Los Angeles, Mary Garcetti, and also the UK Consulate General. And really over the next coming weeks, the biggest change that we're going to see, especially from, from young people, is demanding not just a talk around what climate justice solutions must look like, but really understanding the implementation process. And not just focusing on the fact that we have to protect animals, but also protecting communities. Because when we talk about climate justice, especially from the previous COPs, there's only really been a focus on how do we um, continue to lower our emissions without the aspects of equity or justice or jobs ever really mentioned in a meaningful or substantive way. And that's really what the push is for the next couple of weeks from, from, from us is one, making our voices heard by, by organizing mass, mass mobilizations at COP26, and two, making sure that our voices are heard inside the room as well. Me being a, um, a White House climate advisor, I was elected. I was selected by the youth movement. Like it's, I'm only here because of the organizers like Greta Thunberg and Varshini Prakash from the Sunrise Movement and Nadia Nazar from Zero Hour. It's because of them that we're here and we're pushing for more action. And at COP26, we're really gonna gonna demand real real change at the international stage. So Leah, uh, that term intersectional environmentalism is a mouthful, an important one. Uh, of course, and I'd, I'd like you to take a moment, if you don't mind, and describe for our, our audience what that means to you and why it's different than environmental movements and environmental action of the past. So when I entered the environmental space, whether it was studying environmental science and policy or working with different organizations like the National Park Service, I really saw a lack of diversity and inclusion, especially in a lot of leadership positions in these environmental spaces. However, climate justice and environmental justice are so urgent and communities of color are being impacted by the climate crisis the most right now. So I really wanted to be in environmental spaces that were prioritizing the urgency of environmental justice. And not only that, highlighting diverse leaders who have been advocating for sustainability and environmentalism for quite some time. So to me, intersectional approaches to environmentalism are ones that highlight and celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really push towards climate justice and don't consider environmental justice as some sort of optional add-on to the world of environmentalism. So because climate justice is so urgent, our approaches to environmentalism sh should consider who is being impacted by climate injustice the most and amplify their voices and leadership positions. And so just to follow up on that as well, I mean, could you talk for a moment about why it's important that leaders, whether it's those from across the world gathering in Scotland next week, beginning next week, or here at home, consider environmental action through this lens that you're talking about um, and in ways that maybe have not been at the forefront in the past? Absolutely. So when we're in environmental conversations talking about biodiversity and protecting our world and our environment and conservation, it's quite silly to not consider that indigenous people um, protect over 80% of the world's biodiversity. And there are so many indigenous and black and brown communities that are also pioneering incredible solutions to the climate crisis or have been practicing really sustainable land management practices. So that's just one reason why it's really important because so many of these perspectives can hold the solutions to the climate crisis that we're facing. But not only that, um, having diversity of thought will also enhance any solution or conversation about environmentalism. So that's why taking these approaches is really important and considering you know, everyone when we're talking about climate solutions. <laughs> So, Jerome, uh, for those of uh, for those in our audience who don't know this, you went from protesting outside of the White House regularly to now serving in an official 
capacity inside the White House. And I wonder what you might tell us about, uh, you know, the president and his administration, uh, what they are doing to make space uh, on this issue to, 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 in concrete ways, prioritize environmental justice. And to add on to that, I mean, what surprised you or frustrated you having that glimpse on the inside versus when it was solely on the outside? Sure. So, yeah, um, especially as now being inside the White House and advising on different policies like the Justice Ford Initiative and also on the environmental justice screening tool, it's been a kind of shift in mindset because I used to intern for Representative John Lewis and in the mornings I climate striked outside and, on the inside, and in the evenings I answered the phone and was working on the inside on policy. So I've always had that dual mindset, but going into the White House, it was a different level of understanding that... At first, we were there, we're saying, hey, we need to have recommendations that center disadvantaged communities. But now as we go back and review, what's been frustrating is seeing that over the past decades, when it comes to environmental justice, the reason why we haven't been seeing so much infrastructure investment that we needed is because of the fact that there was environmental racism at hand. When it comes to frontline communities, a lot of that, that investment that was allocated in the case of um, Flint, Michigan, and in South um, in the South of Chicago, and in the Lower Ninth Ward in Louisiana, the money that was sent there didn't go to them. It went to communities that were already um, able to insulate themselves from the climate crisis. So I think that that's been a real frustration. And I think also the timeline. When we talk about really what's needed is ambitious and equity-based solutions, it comes with the timeline of saying we have seven to nine years for us to have a mandate that prioritizes our environment before we start reaching irreversible feedback loops that continue to destabilize our climate systems. That's why right now we're pushing so heavily and from the inside we're meeting almost every single week, almost every single day really, to organize and make sure that these recommendations are robust and making sure that they're as progressive as possible. So it's that dual mindset that I always try to keep, but the frustration has just been the urgency. Just briefly, I mean, are there things, uh, obviously this administration has has made a lot of uh, proposals and uh, certainly has prioritized, the president has even talked about this issue. Certainly Michael Regan that we just spoke to has talked a lot about environmental justice communities. Are there things you think the administration could be doing better or could be moving faster on? Obviously uh, on a lot of fronts and when you're talking about Congress, things don't always happen as quick um, as people might like. But I just wonder now that you've seen uh, both sides of that, uh, how, how you think about that. When I think about how we craft policies around environmental justice, I think that there's a big shift in the fact that from everyday people, we're expecting real systemic change, like six feet of seawall in some communities that saves us from flooding. And we're expecting like infrastructure that helps us be preventative from fires all across California and the West Coast. But on the inside and the policy angle, I think that there is a shift from relying so much on Congress and not realizing the fact that we voted in a progressive president. And a progressive president is supposed to be pushing the envelope and not letting one or two senators, like Senator Joe Manchin and Senator um, Sinema, really dictate what climate solutions will happen. Young people organized over the last two years to really prioritize climate justice on a national level. And the, the awareness is here. Like young people made up 20% of the, of the ballot. And now as we go into these offices, they kind of act like frontline communities are, are there, but not really valued in the way that they should be instrumental in every step of the way. Right now, as we crafted our policies back in, in February for the first iteration of them, we're still yet to see any of them be put into practice. Right now, they're just having talks, they're still having just implementation meetings and thinking about how they engage with stakeholders. But really what needs to happen is for them to say, hey, we have a timeline. Before the next midterms, we don't know if we'll still have a progressive majority. We need to use this power that we've organized over the past couple of years and really put that pedal to the metal and make sure that we have every single thing that we voted, that people voted us in here to, to, to do. Uh, Leah, I want to ask you a question that we've got, we have from an audience member here from Court in California. And Court asks, what do you think it's going to take for America to stop burning fossil fuels and commit to a clean energy future? That's a great question. And I want to lead with a little bit of compassion here, um, because I know that there are a lot of people who are making a living in the oil industry. But I do think to transition away from oil, there needs to be um, there needs to be significant policy that's bringing renewable energy and also bringing job creation, especially to the people who will be losing their jobs as we transition away from oil and gas. 
In addition to that, there needs to be improved infrastructure when it comes to having electric charging stations and things like that. But there's so many layers when it comes to this transition, but really significant policy changes are going to have to happen in order to transition away from oil and gas into renewables. Um, let's stay with you, Leah. I, I wanted to go back to an EPA report that I just spoke with Administrator Regan about uh, from September, you know, that found people of color are exposed to higher levels of pollution, regardless of where they live or their income level. Uh, you know, these exposures can have very serious uh, public health implications. And I wanted to ask you, what does uh, findings like that, and of course, similar findings have, have come from other studies, what does that tell us about systemic racism and and in, in particular, its effect on public health. It's really scary when you look at the data because these studies have been around since the 80s and the Environmental Protection Agency has been well aware of these connections when it comes to race and income and communities experiencing a pollution burden. Um, however, there is a lack of communication between the communities that are facing this pollution burden because the more and more I talk to people, even in my hometown of St. Louis and say, did you know that African-American communities regardless of their income level are exposed to over 70 they're they're exposed to pollution that's in violation of federal air quality standards and there are so many black and brown communities that are just living in increased air pollution and they might just think okay a lot of people in our neighborhood happen to have asthma or have these respiratory illnesses but it's actually linked to that increase in particulate matter. So I think something that's really important because the studies have been there for a really long time is educating people in these communities that this is happening because oftentimes people will say that asthma and these respiratory illnesses are genetic or it's hereditary, but they're kind of ignoring the systemic racism that's at play that's allowing this environmental racism to happen. So there needs to be bold action um, at the federal level because again these studies have been there for so long and there also needs to be increased communication to let people know in these neighborhoods that this is happening and this is something that can change with proper policy protocols. Jerome you've said before that in 10 years time you hope that you're not out having to fight over climate change. I'd like to know what did you mean by that and um, what would you rather be doing a decade from now? Yeah, when we talk about the environmental justice movement, there's really been a sense of we've been fighting since the 1970s to achieve some sort of environmental justice. And even to this day, we really haven't seen substantive change. And me being a young person and growing up, not really wanting to be at the front lines of the climate crisis, just wanting to be a computer programmer. I was passionate about um, astrophysics. But then as my future became a looming crisis, I had to do something. I had to organize in my community because I was in Washington, D.C. But as so many young people that are alongside me in this movement, we have other passions. We don't want to continue to have to fight for the bare minimum of clean air and clean water and sustainable future. We want to be able to have that, that future guaranteed and then for us to pursue our passions, whether that's in finance, whether that's in computer technologies, or whether that's in art or humanities. It's, it's like our future shouldn't be everything that we worry about the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. It should be a way where we can able to to live our lives in, in peace and in, in compassion. I'd like to see if I could get to one or two more reader questions. I'm going to start with you, Leah. Uh, in an earlier life, you worked at Patagonia and, and Kate Spade, and so you've lived in a in a more cor corporate world than than now. We do have an audience question here from Campbell, which is not about those companies in particular, but more generally asks: We cannot buy our way out of this problem. How do you suggest we stop? the greenwashing that is happening from marketing departments and advertisers. And I would just add to that question, the more general one of how should we view the role of corporations and their responsibilities when it comes to climate um, and environmental justice? So I learned a lot when I was working at Patagonia about, you know, businesses and how they can play a role when it comes to supporting grassroots movements. So I think that's a really good place for a lot of corporations to start joining programs like 1% for the planet. So 1% of their sales can go to grassroots environmental activism. But even when I was assessing that a little bit more, a lot of the funding from some of those programs like 1% for the planet are still going primarily to conservation and not to environmental justice focused work. 
work. So if you're a corporation or an organization, I would definitely recommend having some program like that and then also ensuring that some of it is going to environmental justice work. Um, but on the greenwashing front, this is really difficult. One of my pet peeves right now is the talk about vegan leather because it might not be made from animals, but a lot of it is being made from oil and plastic polymers. But as a consumer, if you see something that says vegan leather or you see something that says eco-friendly, it's really easy to just go with it and trust your gut, but there's just no regulation over certain terms like eco-friendly, etc. So I think the government and policy can definitely play a role in maybe regulating the way that companies are able to talk about their products, um, being able to define what green means and what eco-friendly means because those aren't certifications. But as a consumer, I would definitely look out for specific certifications, whether it's 1% for the planet, um, an organic certification, um, look for the proof in the packaging and make sure that it's actually made from sustainable materials and go to that company and check out their sustainability initiatives. If they're saying that they're green, but they don't don't have any formal sustainability initiatives, chances are they're not. So we don't have much time here, but I want to go to you each briefly once more. Um, and let's start with you, Jerome. We've talked a lot about the existing problems um, of environmental and climate justice and the problems of the past. Um, I'm curious for both of you, what excites you about the future, whether it's a spe specific type of technology, whether it's about a movement or policy, uh, what excites you about uh, what might lie ahead and, and your ability to shape it? Jerome, let's go to you and then Leah uh, briefly. Yeah, there are a few things that excite me. It's one is definitely the movement of people that are continuing to push policy change that we need to see, but it's also the technology that is already on the horizon. Like we've already been seeing some companies like IKEA and others like that that have been centering themselves in environmental justice and then pushing forward beyond that. And I think that's really what has to happen is that not just focusing on movements, not just focusing on policy or corporations, but the intersectionality between all three of them. And that is the excitement that I see is that even more deeply, especially as we go into COP26, we're going to see that unity of, of between these different stakeholders, and that can lead to the most rich solutions. And Leah? And something that really excites me is just the way environmental education is starting to be taught through a lens of intersectionality. There are so many college programs and even elementary and high school programs that are starting to talk about the history of the environmental justice movement and starting there so environmental programs can really just evolve and really prioritize environmental justice. So the way that environmental education is starting to be taught has me really excited and optimistic for the future. Well, I think that's about all the time we have today. I, I wanna thank our guests, Leah and Jerome, for a very thoughtful conversation on climate justice. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.